Hi, James. Ben, how are you? I am very depressed and frustrated. <laughs> you have to tell everybody why you're depressed and frustrated. So I, I actually thought, and I mean, I'm not just saying this because of the circumstances. Like I thought we recorded like a really good podcast this week. Uh, and it was good. It was tight. Wasn't gonna need much editing. Like, and you even made like a, a mistake in it, which let me make one of my points, which was fantastic. And you're not gonna do it again. I'm frustrated about it. But uh, it turns out I was recording my mic to an empty file or to to a non-existent input. Uh, and uh, and there is no there is no record of what I said. Uh, yeah, I know. Oh well, too bad. And it's funny you say this because it's <laughs> been such a good couple of weeks. I was actually over in Taipei visiting you. It's been I, I'm I don't know. I, I'm a little less depressed than you are. I still think I'm on a holiday high right now. There's nothing so, anybody so can saying, say to like take the take the edge off. So you're saying the more you see me, the more you want to see me. I, I had a fantastic time in Taipei. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Uh, you were a wonderful host and it was wonderful hanging out with your family. Yeah. Well, I mean, I don't know. I, I, I'm, we'll, we'll cross our fingers that this turns out okay. I'm worried we're going to like say everything in like 15 minutes because we already had a, we basically already had a dress rehearsal. So it was a short podcast this week. Sorry in advance. Yes. Uh, sorry in advance. And uh, also, uh, right now I'm in Beijing in China. So fingers crossed, uh, my friends over in the Ministry of Information don't decide that I'm, I'm saying unkind things about the People's Republic and decide to cut us off. Yeah, we only got cut off once uh, when we recorded the first time. So hopefully we have a similar or even better luck this time. Yes, on the subject of uh, on the subject of sending thanks, I should also extend that to Wealthfront. This episode is sponsored by Wealthfront. They're an automated investment service built for the modern era, and it's making it easier than ever to invest your money well. How do they do it? Well, Wealthfront uses software instead of retail locations, salespeople, and so on, so it can offer sophisticated investment advice at low costs that were previously impossible. It has exploded in popularity in the last two years, and they now have more than $2.5 billion under management. Check them out at wealthfront.com slash exponent to get up to $15,000 managed for free. Very good, and our thanks to uh, Wealthfront for for sponsoring Exponent once again. Uh, been been a great great partner, and we get to thank them twice this week, even though the first one uh, is non existent. Well, we, we we sent them our thanks in spirit, and now we're we're recording it as well. <laughs> yes, exactly. And no, we don't need any tips. Uh, it was a it was just a screw up. Um, uh, I w- I'm not going to place blame on anyone or anything or any app or whatever it might be. Um, I should have caught it. Uh, anyhow. Uh, so James um, can I can I say that our original recording was disrupted oh <laughs> or, is, see, or is that an improper is that an improper application of the see, term see if we hadn't had this problem you wouldn't have been able to make that terrible joke <laughs> <laughs> well the silver linings there we go I, uh, I think it would be an improper well it depends it, it's uh, an improper use of the term disruption as lots of tech people like to use it but in terms of uh, the word in common English it's probably an appropriate usage of the term yeah so I mean Professor uh, Clayton Christensen who you formerly worked with and um, who I don't know personally but have certainly uh, read all his work and, and is someone I admire greatly um, had a piece in the Harvard Business Review with a couple of co-authors uh, basically trying to reclaim the word 
disruption. And I think if there's one lesson to take away, you just nailed it, which is be very careful in choosing a common English word that is so tasty uh, for your business theory because it's gonna get it's gonna get misused. Yeah, I you know it's on one hand, I think he would say uh, he'd he'd wished that he'd chosen another word. But on another hand, I can't help but wonder if a little bit of the reason that the term is so popular is because the word is so tasty. It is. It is a tasty, tasty word. Um, so, uh, so he wrote a piece, um, basically, and the big hook that everyone in tech kind of latched onto, and understandably so, was uh, one of his main points was that Uber is not disruptive. And, uh, you know, kind of laid out uh, that... Uber is kind of came in on the high end. And actually, I think he undersold it. Um, I wrote about this week in, in a piece called Beyond Disruption uh, in that it's not just that Uber was provided a superior service to taxis, which is, I think, is absolutely the case. But they actually started in the black car market, right? So they, they were significantly more expensive and a significantly better experience when for the first three years of their existence. And only then did they kind of go down market and as Christensen pointed out, and as he's been very consistent on in defining disruption from the innovator's dilemma on, there's a, there's a chapter in the innovator's dilemma called "What Goes Up Cannot Go Down." Uh, I might have got that phrasing slightly wrong, but um, is that disruption is a is a bottoms up phenomena in that uh, the 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 incumbent companies they they have constrained resources. They have a choice. Do we serve a customer on the high end or one on the low end? And they will naturally choose one on the high end because there's going to be greater margin there. And that's a very rational decision to make. But the problem is that that's rational in the short to medium term. But in the very long term, uh, it might actually turn out that the lower level is much larger. And it may also turn out that someone that comes in the lower level will improve and get better and be better on different dimensions such that they will ultimately capture the high end as well. And then the incumbent company is disrupted. Right. Uh, is, that a, is that a fair, yeah, fair that's articulation? Yeah, that's a fair articulation. And the way I think about it is it, it leaves oxygen at the bottom of the market for someone to come along and and figure out how to work in, in what are effectively low oxygen conditions. Uh, now that in itself isn't enough to end up being disrupted. There also needs to be some kind of scalable advantage inherent in that low end, that low end competitor that enables them when they move up to either outperform the incumbent or to offer the same service as the incumbent at a lower price point. So the, the example that I often give when explaining this is uh, the Four Seasons Hotel compared to Best Western. Best Western is not. Uh, disruptive relative to the Four Seasons. Best Western is just a low-end competitor to the Four Seasons because if Best Western decides to move up market to compete with the Four Seasons, they have to add in the all the expensive property, they all the furnishings, all the staff, build the, the incredible brand. And uh, by the time they've done all those things, they've effectively got the exact same cost basis as what the Four Seasons has. If you want to, if it's not just enough to come in at the low end, it needs to come in at the low end and have some kind of scalable advantage. Now, you compare the Four Seasons to Airbnb, there is a scalable, uh, there is a scalable uh, advantage inherent in Airbnb in the way that they, the way that they have built that business model. They have because right, they don't own the property exactly. They're creating a market. 
Right. And so, so th- that's the difference between low-end competition and disruption. Right. You know, I, and so, and I think that that's a, that's, um, that's a good extra point. And I think the point that Christensen it was kind of, was kind of uh, indexing on it. And then again, this is a point he's made consistently is this aspect of it being low end and the fundamental reason why Uber was not disruptive. And to go back to kind of a famous example where I've, you know, <laughs> beefed with uh, Professor Christian before the reason why Apple was not disruptive to Nokia was because it was not low end. It came in at the top of the market. It was very expensive. It was more expensive uh, and it did more, did more things. And that's kind of the, and so, yes. So, so what's funny is my, my whole, my, the whole point of my, my article was, um, I agree. I agree that Uber is not disruptive. That's exactly right. What's so interesting though, is that setting aside the definition of disruption, if you just look at the end results, you can kind of understand what people say that Uber disrupted the taxi industry because the taxi industry kind of looks like an industry that's been disrupted. You know, all their assets are kind of going to zero, like the taxi medallions, all that sort of stuff. They're they're pleading the government for help. They're getting just completely obliterated by mm. a scalable competitor. And and so what's interesting, what I was trying to explore in this piece is okay, I grant you that Uber is not disruptive, but the end result looks an awful lot like disruption. Mm. So what might be happening here? And that's that's kind of the point I was trying to explore uh, yeah. with the idea of being beyond disruption. So I think you've picked up a fascinating thread and pulled on it. And I think it's something that warrants, uh, it warrants the exploration that you're giving it. It's interesting, it's interesting in the case of the iPhone and Nokia uh, and it's it's almost easier to talk about it there because it's played out a little bit further. Uh, what you're describe so I actually think that um, I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna give it a little bit away, and then we'll come back and talk about it. But I actually think Uber is disruptive. Um, but let's let let me give you that teaser, and then let's go back to Apple, uh, the iPhone, and Nokia. I think the iPhone was disruptive too. I think the point that you're making here is that. Uh, uh, is that the iPhone wasn't disruptive relative to Nokia. And it, it came in above Nokia as a higher end. What the iPhone did to Nokia and dumb phones is exactly what Nokia did to um, the calculator. It, 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 it wasn't disruption because it came in above. And I think, uh, I think the argument I would make, though, is that the iPhone was disruptive relative to something else. The iPhone was disruptive relative to PCs. And now you look at the total market for phones, it's much bigger than it ever was under, under the previous, um, under the, uh, like when it was dumb phones. And that's because there's been this element of disruption of another market. And I think this brings to, to light a really interesting uh, point that disruption is that disruption is the application of it is actually there's a degree of art. It requires a really rich understanding of a market to be able to say, uh, to to be able to talk about disruption and it's relative to something else. The iPhone relative to Nokia and dumb phones was absolutely not disruptive. The iPhone relative to PCs though is absolutely disruptive. People are stopping, they, they use their PCs less and they're using the iPhone more. And this is the this is the thing that frustrated me so much about Christensen's and, and co-author Professor Christensen's article. Uh, 
is that, yes, uh, taken narrowly, Uber is not disruptive relative to the taxi industries. But Uber is, is the, the market for Uber now is so much bigger than what the taxis were. And there's, I think today there was news that they're looking for a $62.5 billion valuation. That's not from taking out the taxi industries. That's from taking out personal transportation. That's from taking out a right, different right. market altogether. No, exactly. And, and so, so to be clear, I 100% agree. And I, that was actually the last slide of my piece was that um, Uber – Uber is disruptive to personal transportation. And this was, this is, I mean, Professor Christian famously said that the iPhone would fail because um, in disruption theory, there is either you're a disruptive innovation where you come in the low end and the, your, and the key thing is the incumbents are not motivated to respond to you because it's not worth their time. Um, it, it, because the, you know, if they're making a rational choice about where to allocate scarce resources mm. and the rational choice is to pursue the high, the high end customer and not serve the low end customer. Mm. And so if you want to serve the low end customer, fine. Um, the, uh, and, and so in the case, and, and so for the opposite of disruptive innovation is a sustaining innovation, which is like, you're, you're taking away the best customers with a superior technology, a superior product. And according to disruption theory, the incumbents are heavily incentivized to respond to that. Mm. And furthermore, the theory states that the incumbents will almost always win that battle. Yeah. And that's and so the 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 kind of the thing that I'm picking at here a little bit is uh I'm dissatisfied. And I get this all the time. Whenever I talk about like the that the iPhone was not disruptive, I get forty seven tweets echoing Professor Christensen who stated, "Oh no, the iPhone was disruptive. Disruptive PCs." I'm like, "Okay, fine. I don't disagree. It was. It is. It is disrupting PCs, and, and, and actually, Android more than anything disrupted mm. Windows." Um, but we still haven't explained what happened to Nokia, and like, and that's 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 what I'm interested in understanding. And I'm interested in the context of Uber and taxis and understanding, okay, that's fine. Disruption fits. And I, and I guess, you know, I, I have several threads going on here. I guess the first thing I, w- I would want to note and make clear is I like disruption. I, bl- I, I, I subscribe to it. I think it has incredible explanatory power in some situations. And I guess the frustration I have, um, at times it kind of came across this article, but it definitely comes across with many of the adherents of disruption, mm. is the presumption that disruption is the end-all, be-all of ex- explanatory business theory. And I just don't think that's the case. I think it fits in some circumstances, and it does not fit in others. I, I think that's exactly right. In, in, it's... So, so you're, you're taking me back to Professor Christensen's class, and... One of the, like the basic premise of the class is he is equipping students with um, the best causal theory that there is in order to go out into the world and be effective general managers. And there is a reason why there is not only one business theory taught in that class. Yeah, disruption is taught. And actually, it's one of the one of the earlier classes we do, but there are all these other classes that we take as well with all this other research. And the reason is that fundamentally we're dealing with a social science and there's a lot more at work than just one thing. And the way that I came away from thinking about, uh, thinking about the business world from this class was it's almost like this very complex multivariate equation. 
And each, each component, each, each theory has a certain degree of explanatory power. Now, there's not going as much as we would love there to be the case that there's this grand unifying theory that explains everything. That's never going to be the case. There are going to be various theories that have applicability in different situations and the amount they're going to explain or to enable you to predict certain things is going to vary. And disruption, I, I think it's, it's absolutely one of, the, uh, one of the theories that explains a lot. But this idea that it explains everything sounds suspiciously to me like it, people who have that, it's, it's like the old saying, when all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. You will misapply it. You will not understand it. And I mean, again, another one of the approaches that Professor Christensen takes in this class is to try and pull everything apart and understand where things don't work. So we get a better understanding. We're able to build the theory up. To say that it's perfect and it explains everything in all circumstances is not something that he would do. In fact, I think in the article he explicitly says that's not the case. He does. At the end it says, and I'm quoting, disruption theory does not and never will explain everything about innovation specifically or business success generally. Far too many other forces are in play, each of which will reward further study. Integrating them all into a comprehensive study of business success is an ambitious goal, one we are unlikely to attain anytime soon. Mm. Um, which is great. I'm glad he stated it in there. I guess my... <laughs> My frustration with this article and with uh, uh, other writings and, and, and interviews is that feels tacked on instead of being a controlling assumption. Yeah. And, <laughs> it, um, and, and I, I guess the – sorry, go ahead. I, 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 well, here, here's, here, here's, what, here's what I mean. Yeah. In the, so take, take Apple for an example. Mm. Um, I mean just because that's, that's one that obviously we, we've talked a lot about. I've written a lot about. Like, actually, it really gets to this this distinction between uh, disruptive innovation and sustain sus, sustaining mm. uh, innovation. And I'm fine with that distinction. What I'm not fine with is the the secondary uh, assertion that sustaining innovations or products that are better are likely to fail. And, and that that's taking it a step too far. Like to me, you can explain how disruption happens and why disruptive products succeed, but I I, I definitely disagree that by extension, if you're not disruptive, you're not going to succeed. Well, but that is definitely a sentiment that is that does come through in this article and in several of the books and, and things. And I guess my, my whole contention here, and we'll get into some of the specifics uh, of ones that I've thought about, uh, um, but it is, is that presumption that if it's not disruptive, it's probably not going to work. Well, that's interesting. I, I don't think, uh, I, I personally don't think that if it's not disruptive, it's not going to work or the, the, uh, the inverse of that statement, which is sustaining innovations don't work because by and large, what most innovations are um, inside of most businesses is uh, sustaining innovations. Like it's not possible for every business to come along and come up with a disruptive innovation. They're actually pretty rare. It's often this scalable advantage coupled with this uh, this business model that enables them to compete against incumbents in a way that makes it uh, uh, like it's orthogonal to an incumbent, and it's uh, the the the, uh, the motivations are so asymmetric that the incumbents that their rational choice is to flee. I think 
what's interesting is that what, what I think you're driving at here is that perhaps there's value in revisiting some of the research in light of the internet. Like the internet's changed a number of things. And I think the first place to start would actually be sustaining innovations. It's, it's, it, the, the case is made that, um, uh, at least historically, that with, with sustaining innovations, it's the incumbents that will always win those battles. And yeah, it, it does say, it, it, it states in this article mm. that sustaining innovations only succeed 8% of the time. Like, it, 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 like, um, or, or no, it says, sorry, it says that was, that was the disk drive 6% of the time. It doesn't state a number, but it says the data supports the theory's prediction that entrants pursuing a sustaining strategy for a standalone business will face steep odds. The, the problem is, yes, the, well, I guess that, that, that gets to my point. Like, in the areas that was studied, that may be the case, but I think there's there's areas, there's other areas where that's not necessarily the case. I I just I I dislike this over indexing on if it's not disruptive according to the Christensen definition, where it has to be you know the low end and all the sort of stuff that he weighed out in this article that it's almost certainly going to fail, and that that is my well, one of my biggest frustrations. I mean, I, I mean, of course, and I I, I think I, if 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 the case is it's just disruptive and just sustaining, then that's going to be enough to determine what's going to succeed and what's going to fail. I think it would be foolish to 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 uh, to just state that because there are so many other factors at play, right? And but, but 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 we see article after article like this. I mean, there was there was one in the in HBR again, like uh, last last summer, saying Tesla is almost certainly doomed because they're not being disruptive. They should start out as like a golf cart company or something like that. I mean, I, I'm, I'm kind of overstating it to make a point, but you do see this again and again. Like if it's not disruptive, it's not going to succeed. And I, I just think that's unfortunate. I think it does disruptive disruption theory a disservice yeah. because again, disruption theory has tremendous explanatory power when applied in areas where it makes sense. And I guess my big contention, we should probably get into some specifics here instead of just talking around it. Yeah. My big contention is that there are actually definable situations where disruption theory does not apply, where there might be room for another theory. And, and I think disruption theory adherents would do themselves well to to leave room for there being other theories. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I don't, I don't think anyone's... I, I think it's more a all things being equal type argument as opposed to uh, something's disruptive, something's not disruptive, and then or sustaining, it will succeed and it will fail. But I, I, I like even before we get into the disruption, I think there's a point around this sustaining thing that I wanted to make that I think is, is an example of how as a result of internet economics, which is something that you've picked up a lot in your writing, this idea that marginal cost is moving to zero, and I'm sure it's something we're going to talk about a little bit more. Like the argument has been made historically that sustaining innovations, these improvements that are accepted by the incumbents, these are battles that incumbents always win. Now, I actually think that um, one of the changes in in the internet world is that that may not always be the case that uh, so traditionally they've always won because they'd, they'd be the ones that could throw the most resources and because it fit their business model, that's what they want to run with. But, but the, the internet changes that like one of the big advantages that, that you can get is from, from like data. And if, if you are an incumbent, uh, 
if you're an incumbent and someone gets a first mover advantage on the basis of data, a sustaining, like in the past, you might be able to win if it was a if it was not relying on data. But if you're a first mover and you start using data, you start building up this virtuous cycle and it, it can generate an unassailable lead. And so an example of this might be Google. Like Yahoo owned the search business before Google came along. Google came along and Yahoo, like the, the theory would suggest Yahoo would see what Google's doing, copy it and run with it, right? And uh, because they have more resources than Google, they should win. But Google built up this advantage based on data that Yahoo was unable to catch up on. Well, yeah, to, to, to a degree. I mean, I think the, the, the other thing people forget about uh, Google and Yahoo um, is that, I mean, Yahoo was, and, and all search engines at that time were, were kind of linear scaling ideas. Uh, I mean, Yahoo itself was a directory, like a human curated directory. Like here, if you want to see a web page about science, you can go here. Mm. Um, but even the, even the search engines were like pure, just like searching text and stuff like that, and, and relevance of that. What made Google so powerful, and this was almost like Google was almost just a pure like technology, superior technology is going to win sort of thing. What made Google so powerful was that Google built its search index on the link. Like a something that was was totally native to the web, and that and what made it what made this so powerful was actually the more pages there were on the internet, by extension, the more links there were, mm. and the more links there were, the better Google search became. So unlike all the other search engines, which got worse the bigger the web got, Google actually got better the bigger the web got mm. and they and they were just so superior from a technological angle that I, I don't think anyone really had a chance i do think your point is a good one though but it, it probably fits better with google and bing yeah because because at a very core level bing is using the same idea as google is but they're so much more behind uh both in time but also in number of searches per day for example yeah that all things being equal if you say everything was totally equal uh and you but you put their current market shares as they were, the the you would expect Google to actually increase its lead just because it's accruing so much more data and so much more interaction and and things like that. Yeah, I think that's I think the the uh, reframing it of not Yahoo but rather Bing. I think that's a very good point. So um so let's get into some of the specifics of like of 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 the the where things might not have been disruption and I think it and. Um, so we'll, we'll start with, with Apple. So we, hmm. Apple, I, I don't know if we ever actually, we kind of got into it to a degree with Apple and disruption and all this sort of stuff, but I don't think we ever talked about this point specifically, which is funny because this is where, this is the reason we started the podcast. Um, but, uh, I, I famously, uh, well, famously to me <laughs> wrote, <laughs> wrote an article, what pressure Christian got wrong, but actually I think the more pertinent article was one I actually wrote the next week, um, which was called obsoletive. Hmm. And uh, yeah, I'm probably pretty terrible at naming things. I admit that I have a psychological trajectory. It's it's not um, it's not disruption. It's not as tasty as disruption. Th- it is true, but it, but it's also un- less likely to be to be uh, to to be subsumed or stolen or whatever the word is. Um. So what I believe happened. So so again, yes, I grant all the everyone who's going nuts in their car listening to this. Yes, the iPhone. Fresh Christian is right. The iPhone disrupted PCs. 
my my frustration is Professor Christian never actually explained what happened in Nokia because the you know he famously came out in several different situations and said he didn't expect the iPhone to succeed mm. because Nokia would be heavily motivated to respond. They had superior resources, superior distribution, all these sorts of things. Clearly, that didn't happen. Mm. Um, so, what did happen? That's I'm curious. I I want to know that. Um, so, my contention is that is that Nokia got obsoleted. And what I mean by that is, go back and look at the the original iPhone. The original iPhone had, uh, I'm actually looking at a picture of it now, it had uh, 15 icons on the screen. Uh, one of those icons was a phone icon. And the icon was no bigger or different or whatever than any other icon on the screen. It was just, it was just another app on the screen. Mm. And what happened was that phone icon, that was Nokia. Nokia got reduced to an icon on a general purpose computer. And they were just fundamentally ill-equipped to, they, they, they had no chance. It was no different than the PC, what the PC did to the typewriter, mm. right? Like the type, like it, 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 it completely subsumed it. Uh, the same thing happened to BlackBerry. BlackBerry is famous for doing email. Well, what was email on the iPhone? Yeah. Yeah, I, it was another an, icon on the screen right next to icon. the phone icon. Yeah, it, this <laughs> exactly. Is, it's making me think of like what uh, Apple, what Nokia did to the calculator, Apple did to Nokia. Right, you mentioned that before. No, yeah. exactly. And you see, there's lots of examples of this. Actually, it, actually, I would argue obsolescence is actually a more uh, impactful and has done more to change uh, to redistribute value in technology than disruption has. It's, frankly. Mm. I mean, because you see this again and again where the general purpose device just obliterates all these specialized devices underneath it. And then over time, lots of specialized devices get built up, then boom, they're all up. The iPhone did it to the iPod. What was the iPod to the iPhone? Yeah. It was the another icon on the screen. And right? the camera too, right? The digital camera. It's the same thing happening right now. Absolutely. Absolutely. You see, I mean, the typewriter, the word processor by the PC, uh, typesetting like uh, was obliterated by desktop publishing. The newspaper by the internet broadly, CD player by the iPod, the iPod by the iPhone. I mean, you you actually see this happen again and again in technology, and a lot of it has to do with Moore's law. A lot of it has to do with uh, the rise of kind of just general purpose computing and uh, operating system, that sort of thing. Um, and so that's what I think happened. To Nokia, they got they didn't get disrupted. No, they got obsoleted, and then you can follow on from that. So again. Yes, I will grant you, not grant you, I will fully agree that the iPhone was disrupted to PCs, but stage one, that was stage two, right? It wasn't disruptive right away. It, the first thing it did was wipe out what was there, and then you, and I just said it, it's a general purpose computer. Oh, it's a general purpose computer. It's yeah, a general it's, purpose it's, computer in every pocket, everywhere. It's interesting. That seems like a good vector yeah. to then disrupt other general purpose computers. These are, these are, um, it's interesting though, because all the instances of, or the, all the examples you mentioned, this, the Nokia was, um, Nokia was wiped out by disruptive technology, but it wasn't disrupted. And I think this is where a lot yes. of, a lot of people get, um, hung up and then they just equate the two. And I, I think, you're like what you're describing is exactly right. The process by which Nokia got destroyed was not disruption. It was destroyed by a disruptive technology. And you know what? Like this is getting at the biggest frustration I had with 
the article that Professor Christensen wrote with his co-authors is that it is selling the disruptive theory short. Yes, re- re- like there, there is it, to, to be able to apply these theories to, to there's to even develop them, but to apply them properly requires such a deep understanding of the context in which these businesses are operating. And the biggest frustration I have with this article is it feels like um, th- these these professors are incredibly smart. Professor Christensen is a mentor and but, and, and a dear friend, but it does not feel like he is the standard uh, user of an Uber service when he wrote the article. And I think what he wrote is absolutely correct, but he did disruption a disservice by by uh, uh, focusing on Uber not being disruptive to taxis, which I completely agree with. But the reason Uber is worth so much is because it is a it is a disruptive company. It's not disruptive to taxis. It's disruptive to uh, personal transportation more generally. And I think this is the exact right. Do, 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 you own, do you own a car, James? I actually, it's funny you mentioned this, Ben. I do not own a car. I I have a bike and. The part of the reason I don't own a car is because like I am now able to take Ubers everywhere. Now it's clearly not as good as owning a car. Um, I can't in some dimensions. Yeah. Right. Like I can't store things in it. Um, like if you wanna, if you wanna put kid seats in it and keep kid seats in it, it doesn't work. Wait, wait, wait! wait. You have, a, you have a kid. Well, you have a kid. You know. Oh, was, theor- was, theoretically speaking. Okay. I got well, it. I don't. <laughs> I'm about. Um, should I make the joke? I, I don't know. Of, no, I don't have any kids that I know of. Let's put it that way. <laughs> I'm, I'm not putting any kids in back seats on a regular basis. But they're they're like clearly like I want to put my bike on the roof or something, or put roof racks in or something like that. Like on a number of traditional dimensions, they're clearly inferior, but they're good enough. Like they're good enough. Like I am the quintessential. Um, underserved, uh, like, well, uh, I'm the quintessential underserved customer. Like I am a non-consumer. I can't, I have not gone and bought a car because I think it's too expensive. It's too hard to park, like all these things. But Uber comes along and suddenly it pulls me into the personal transportation market. Like it is a classic case of the example it is a classic case of the process of disruption at work. And the, the frustration I have is it feels a little bit like history repeating in that, um, like saying Uber is going to fail because Uber is sustaining relative to taxis is the exact same. Re- I, I, I feel to my mind, it's the exact same thing that landed Professor Christensen in hot water talking about Apple. Yes, the iPhone relative to Nokia is sustaining, but that's not the headline case for disruption. No, uh, it's not the headline case for disruption here. It's the iPhone relative to the PCs. That's the interesting thing about disruption, the iPhone, Nokia, and PCs. And the same thing with Uber. It's like, yeah, we can we can talk about the fact that Uber is not disruptive relative to taxis. But the interesting thing to me relative uh, for, for Uber in and the context of disruption is how Uber is going to be disruptive to the personal transportation industry. And that is way bigger than taxis will ever be. Right. No, exactly. And so, um, no, I, I agree. And so, and so that's, the whole, that's, again, we're on the same page. It's like, it's this, this, the problem isn't disruption theory. It's the attempt to think that disruption theory applies to everything. And that's all that matters. Right. Right. I, I know. And I do think, so I completely agree. Uber, the the reason why I'm so bullish on the company is because I think they are 
disruptive to transportation broadly. That still leaves the question, though, what did happen to taxis? Right. And 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 again, that's fine. I'll grant you they're not disrupting taxis. But at the end of the day, the results kind of look similar. So. I'll get. I should. I should get over my frustration point. But like, it's like it's not enough to say that it's not disruptive, and that's the end of it, right? No, like, well, this is this is why this is why rights are technically. Like, I want to understand this stuff. What what is happening that makes Uber so value destructive to the incumbents? What makes the incumbents incapable of? effectively responding because it sure sounds like there's something going on here and sure it might not be disruption but that doesn't mean there isn't something that can't be explained and can't be abstracted and potentially applied elsewhere right i i mean i i i talked about this in the podcast before like the whole whenever i write about theory like it, there's a very big bifurcation in detective readers like mm-hmm. half like yes more they're half like oh no not theory <laughs> Like give me back to, to my web pages suck or something. Yeah, um, I, I like, I, and I kind of get that. It's like theory is associated with theoretical, which is like associated with like this isn't applicable. It doesn't understand. But you just have to go back into uh, into human history and and uh, like you look at people who are operating in the absence of things that we take for granted that I would associate with theory now and you just think they're backwards like p- p- people didn't understand the idea of bacteria previously they didn't understand the idea of germs until someone hypothesized around them and they built up a theory and now people wash their hands and before surgeries they disinfect and like that's a that's a theory that's an understanding of like when we're talking about theory, good causal theory, what we're talking about is an understanding of how the world works and why, like what causes what and why. And um, to, to not be interested in theory or to dismiss it is to, I mean, what's going to inform your understanding of the world? Like you're going to have to wait and see what happens every time. You're not going to be able to predict what happens. And that's what that's what the value of this of good theory is. It's like like disruption is so phenomenal to me because it allows me to pick up this lens and apply it to a situation and understand what's going to happen. Now, of course, it's incredibly important that you like with any tool that you apply it properly. And it's also incredibly important that you apply it in the right situation. Like if, if you need to bang a nail into a wall, a hammer's fantastic. But if you need a screw, then you probably want a screwdriver. And I think what you're getting at here is that there is a circumstance in which people like to maybe think it's disruption, but maybe it's not. And it's kind of not clear because it's a disruptive technology wiping out something that doesn't quite work in the theory. And I think, again, like I said it at the beginning, I think you're pulling at a fantastic thread here because What's happening to taxis? What happened to Nokia? Yeah, it happened as a result of a disruptive technology, but it wasn't disruption. So what is it? So I think it really comes back to it. I think this has been a, um, a, a this has definitely been a huge theme for Shatekri throughout is, I mean, so we both went to business school, right? Mm. And something they'll tell you at business school is, um, you know, like you'll go through and you'll learn all these old cases, and they'll be from the 1920s, 1940s, or 1980s. Like, and and um, <laughs> and this will shock you, James, but I might have been slightly impertinent. 
Um, I, I remember I the could ne- I, wait, <laughs> really? I I can't. I cannot imagine that, Ben. I cannot. My first imagine. day. My first day. My first day of of like the introductory strategy class, and I see like the twenty companies we're gonna look at, and I go up to to my professor, and I'm like, um, "There's no like technology or or internet connect related companies here," and she's like, "Oh, that's okay because it's all about learning the general principles, and and they can be applied broadly," and I'm like, "Okay," um, and. I can just imagine being your professor and just, <laughs> oh God, here comes uh, one of those guys again. Yeah, well, yeah. Uh, you have to deal with it on the podcast. So, <laughs> so, so uh, what I would say, and I, we should pro- we've been teasing at this for ages and we'll get to it, but like what I would say is my professor was right. Uh, if you get very broad constructs, you can abstract it to almost anything. But it, that's like saying like all computer programs can be reduced to ones and zeros. Mm. Right. The, the mm. fact of the matter is the number of programmers who can take a, a program down to its ones and zeros, then build it back up or build a, a different program are few and far between. Right. And, and as as it should be, because that why why would we expect someone to go down to such a level of of um, granularity to, to get something out? And, and the problem, though, is I feel the Internet has so fundamentally changed business at least in the areas where it's closely impacted that it is the equip to get there to understand the internet's impact you have to do the equivalent of breaking down a computer program to its ones and zeros and then Mm. building it back up and that's unrealistic and so all these kids are coming out of uh i'm calling them kids now man i'm getting old all these kids are coming out of business school like having no idea about how the world actually Mm. works because no one's actually going through the process of breaking these yes, valuable theories down to the ones and zeros and building them back up. Um, and so th- frankly, that's a, I already kind of mentioned it, but that that's a big thing for strategies. Like I feel like there's this whole area of re understanding business in the context of the internet. And specifically, and I wrote about this a couple weeks ago and we, I don't think we've, we've had a pocket since then. So it'll be useful. I talked about, wrote a piece called selling feelings. We talked about it before that we, I wrote it. That, 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 that's what happened. And, and basically noting that when distribution costs become zero, the, the locus of competition is fundamentally changed because there's no barrier to entry. If there's no barrier to entry, you're competing not on distribution because on distribution, if you own distribution, if you're a P&G and you have shelf space at the local grocery store, you can leverage that self, shelf space to launch a new product. Because you already have gone through the hard work of securing distribution, mm. and which means the new product you're going to launch is going to be an 80-20 product. It's going to be a lowest common denominator product meant to attract the highest number of people to take advantage of your, the space that you've, you've acquired through your many years of hard work, mm. right? When, it, when, when the shelf space is infinite, when you can serve every customer in a, in a specific way, suddenly to be very good at distribution is a worthless skill. And not only is it a worthless skill, but if your company's been primed to deliver products that are 80-20 products, you're going to get screwed by the 100 products, the ones that are super focused on the consumer experience, are on focus on a niche and delivering exactly what customers want. And this goes back to the data point, for mm-hmm. one, uh, um, because you're, you were set up with different assumptions and your incentives are, are messed up and you're in this very structure of your company's messed up. And this is what the internet by basically the internet has done. It's zeroed out distribution costs 
and it's zeroed out transaction costs. Yep. Where you can have a company that can realistically, like Google, Google can realistically serve every single person on the planet. Mm. It, it, for effectively zero additional dollars. I and mean, it's not exactly true. Obviously, they have to build more servers and stuff like that. But from a marginal cost perspective, a marginal cost is the cost, of what it costs to serve one additional customer. If your marginal, Google's marginal cost is effectively zero, right? It's like 0.0000000001 cent, maybe, hmm. right? It's effectively zero. And so go back to disruption theory. Go back to the name of the book, Innovator's Dilemma. What is the dilemma? The dilemma is that you are a resource-constrained manager deciding which customer to serve. Do you want to serve the high-margin customer or do you want to serve the low-margin customer? And the rational manager chooses to serve the high-margin customer even if in the long run the opportunity is greater with the low-margin customer. But if you don't have constraints, that all goes out the window. If the marginal cost of serving one additional customer is zero, the dilemma is gone. And this is the, like, this is, if you want to pull the disruption being disrupted angle, mm. this is what it is, is the, the dilemma, the, the internet has obviated the, the dilemma, at least in, in certain cases. And that's the case with, that's the case with Uber for Uber to serve one additional customer for Airbnb to serve one additional customer costs them zero dollars. What? So the, the, Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. No, go ahead. No, I, 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 I for a while. You, <laughs> that was pretty epic, but it was also really instructive. And I, I think your your point around uh, thinking about how transaction costs drop to zero, how distribution costs drop to zero, and you go back to what what we were talking about earlier about how business is effectively this one long equation, and it requires such a first principles and critical thinker to be able to come out of an MBA program or approach business and understand what the implications are on running a business as a result of that happening. And I think that's the value of the exploration that we're doing right here. Now, I will say this about disruption. I don't think it's been entirely obviated because your point around marginal costs dropping to zero is absolutely correct. And that's that's the really fascinating thing here. The fixed costs associated with building up one of these businesses, though, is still absolutely non-trivial. So if you're an incumbent and you see someone coming along uh, building one of these businesses, you still are faced with a similar, it's it's not the same dilemma, like the, the again, the equations changed because it's moved much more more from the variable side to the fixed side, but it's still a massive dilemma because if if you're if you're the taxi industry or the hotel industry and you're sitting or a company in that industry and you're sitting there and you're seeing this come along and you're thinking, well, my choice is I can continue to run my existing business and squeeze the most out of that, or I can try and invest to compete against this disruptive upstart and well. Uh, maybe like if I do that, well, I can put all this money in and maybe it fails and I look like an idiot or maybe it succeeds and I wipe out my existing business and who knows what's, what to do there. So like neither of these options look fantastic. So I'm just going to keep running my existing business. It's not like all the costs have gone out and those fixed costs are still tremendous. So there still is an element of the dilemma, I would argue. It's just that the nature of it has changed dramatically. 
So, so this is actually super interesting. There's, there's a couple things to unpack here. So first and foremost, what is so fascinating about the innovator's dilemma, and this is certainly something that's reflected repeatedly in my writing, is, is this idea of, of incentives. Mm. And um, the, the idea that people are controlled by, by, by what they're incentivized at. And, and, and the innovator's dilemma very much taps into that, this idea of the, the, the rational manager mm. choosing the high margin customer. And you're right. Uh, uh, and, and being risk avoidant, right? Because it, you're, you're not going to be rewarded for that. And so that aspect absolutely carries through. Mm. What doesn't carry through, though, and this and it's funny you bring up fixed costs. I think that's actually a big part of that. What doesn't carry through is the innovator dilemma's focus on the low end. Mm. Okay, so you're right. So so let's let's look at the fixed costs from the uh, new company perspective, from the Uber perspective. Mm. Okay, uh, the whole thing with fixed costs is they're they're invested in front of the revenue, right? You're, you're putting in a ton of money to build up the servers, to build up the app, to build all the sorts of things. And then uh, ideally, now it's a sunk cost, right? So for you to take on one additional customer, the margin, that's a, a marginal cost. It's how much does it cost to serve that customer in addition to the customers you already have. A fixed cost, you've already spent it. Okay, mm. so the only benefit of an additional customer is in your accounting, you get to spread out your fixed costs over that many more customers. The motivation then is if you have very high fixed costs, you are strongly motivated to have as many customers as possible so you can spread out those costs over more customers. Mm. Okay, so you, so if you're in a business where you have zero marginal cost and very high fixed costs, you're, you're basically incentivized to serve every single person on earth. That's that's the rational thing to do. Mm. So, but mm. it, but you you can't do it instantly, right? You can't instantly serve every single customer all at once. So the question comes. So 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 a few things going on here. One, your ultimate goal is to serve everyone, and that's different than the manager in your traditional innovator's dilemma, which is resource constrained because of there's marginal costs in if there's no marginal costs and high fixed costs, you are motivated and theoretically capable of serving everyone, mm. but you can't serve everyone immediately. You have to scale. So where are you going to start? Well, keep in mind what are, what is your cost basis? Your cost basis is zero when it comes to marginal costs, mm. but it's significant when it comes to fixed costs, yes. which means if you start out with a small number of customers, the fixed costs applied to each customer is going to be very large, which means your motivation is to get customers who provide high revenue and, and have a high willingness to pay, which by extension means your motivation as a company with high fixed costs and no marginal costs is to start at the high end. And then as you scale and as you can spread out those fixed costs over more and more customers to move your cost, your price point down and to, because your, your, your cost basis is goes down with scale. That's the point of a scalable business is your cost basis goes down, the more customers you get. And so the, the, what's happening here is the exact opposite of, and that's why this is a new, this is something new. It's not disruption. It, it's, it's, because it starts at the high end and goes down, 
Whereas, yes, disruption is low and it goes up. But again, to my earlier point, the end result for the incumbent actually ends up being the same. Yeah, I, I think you, what you're touching on is absolutely critical. I, I think the, the reason that disruption has historically started at the low end is because the companies need to figure out how to survive in that low oxygen environment. And what the, na- the nature of the internet has changed is that because marginal cost drops to zero, these companies don't need to worry about figuring out how to operate in low oxygen environments. The internet does it for them. It's, it takes the cost of serving one additional customer to almost zero. So by virtue of providing a service that, that's, that, that the marginal cost is already zero at, it, they, they don't need to worry about starting at the low end. They can start with the much more profitable customers. Now, I think there's an important caveat here is that what you're describing does only apply to businesses where it is an internet service. It does not, it does not change the nature of the dilemma for things where it's, it's fundamentally much more about a physical service. So if you're still providing a good, or you're still selling a good that still needs to be manufactured and there still will be all the distribution costs and whatever. And that's the case where I think the, the, like trying to start at the high end and move down is probably going to be a challenging set of circumstances. But for these internet services where one more customer equals effectively zero marginal cost to serve, I think this point is absolutely fascinating. Yeah, no, I'm glad you mentioned that because I actually got multiple emails. I, I did a, I actually addressed this in a follow-up in the daily update asking, oh, so Tesla fits, right? Because they're starting at the high end. Mm. It's like, actually, no, they don't fit at all. Right. Um, they don't fit because to your exact point, every expensive car that Tesla makes is an inexpensive car that they're not making. Right. right. It is like they, they, they are resource constrained as is any company that has a marginal cost attached to any additional customer. Because if you have zero marginal costs, you can serve infinite customers. But as soon as your marginal cost is more than zero, like you, you are going to be, there is eventually going to be what's called a marginal customer, which is the last customer that's worth it for you to serve. Mm. And, the, and a marginal plus one customer you're not going to serve. Right. And so, no, Tesla does not fit. Now, does that mean Tesla is doomed? Again, no. no. Tesla and disruption theory, are they, they should build golf carts. Well, no. Like, Tesla is pursuing their own thing. I think there's lots of evidence that when there is, uh, when, when the, level of technological change is as is like a break point like electric versus the combustion engine that you probably do see much more opportunity than say going from a manual transmission to an automatic transmission right mm. sure that was a change but it was still in the same paradigm mm. again maybe so we'll see maybe tesla will succeed maybe they won't they don't fit this right um there's also and there's also the whole experience angle right this is well, this was that this, I was is the, gonna, this is the criticism more. Yeah, yeah no, no, no. I was going to say this is what the, the experience angle is interesting. But, and, and, and this point that we've just made is interesting because this is one of the points that distinguishes what happens, what happened with Apple and Nokia from what happened here with Uber taxis and personal transportation. Because Uber is a case where the marginal cost to serve an additional customer is zero. That is definitely not the case with Apple. Well, the Apple thing is interesting because that, that I mean, because I talked about the obviation article, but the one I'm I'm you know more well known for it, it was 
was more talking about uh, why Apple, because there was, if you, you forget a few years ago, it was commonly received wisdom that Apple was going to be disrupted by modularized Android, mm. that it was going to become good enough and Apple is going to be screwed. And my argument then, I mean, which I, I, I feel pretty confident things has been borne out, but it was more controversial then was that, no, that's not going to happen. And it's not going to happen because when you're selling into a consumer market where the buyer and the user is the same person, there is a significant premium placed on the experience of the device that isn't necessarily the case in, in business markets, which, which if you go back and look through Christensen's research, makes up the, the vast majority, if not all of the examples in his books and stuff like that. And um, and so my contention was was that the iPhone is actually going to be far more resistant to low-end modular disruption than people think it's going to be because the experience matters. And to deliver superior experience, you need to be integrated. Mm. And basically, you can't overshoot. But I will say, though, the, the iPhone has never gone low-end. And in that, this disruption theory is exactly right. Like, Apple does face a dilemma about going low-end. My only contention is that just because they're not going low-end doesn't mean they're doomed in the high-end. Like, there's, there's a much more of a, of a firm mm. moat there. Than, than disruption theory would typically argue. But it's worth noting that, no, they haven't gotten low-end. It gets to the same point. To build a low-end iPhone costs resources, costs things that they that they see more profitable to apply to the high-end. Mm, right. And I think that's a, I think that's a, um, a fair point. Cool. Um, well, I, I actually, I think this version two, we actually, we went in the exact opposite order we did in version one. Yes, we did. It was, uh, it's, it's, it's a real challenge trying to like approach a conversation like this for the first time, even though we've done it before. And it's like, I need to, I need to not make, I need to not anchor on the previous conversation. But at the same time, I do like, we made some like, like not to be, too immodest but we made some great points and i was like i don't want to forget the points we made but then you focus too much on that and then i'm not listening on what you have to say so if i did any of that or if it comes across at all like that to anybody who's listening right now our apologies but we are doing yeah, sorry this for the, sorry for the sorry for the abrupt ending but yeah um no but it, it was funny i just kind of suddenly occurred to me that i think we went in the, the exact opposite order um but i guess i guess the big takeaway is uh, one thing we didn't we did talk about last time we didn't talk about this time um mm. is uh, and you kind of touched on this a little bit is um, like theory really is helpful. Um, like it, I think the key is there just, you need to find, there's a middle ground. There's a middle ground between saying that nothing can help us. We're all on our own. You know, everything's new and that that's no good. That's not a good way to, to approach the world, mm. but it's just as unhelpful to say that I know exactly what should be done here because I have this, to your point, this hammer or, and, or, and I was going to say, or even more. And this is the, this is one of the things that you talked about and it hasn't come across so much this time. This is, must be uh, so funny for people listening, us talking about a conversation. I know we're, we're making all these references. To I know it's like back when I was a boy type thing, but um, you, 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 you got, you, you mentioned that you get frustrated at people who uh, anchor so heavily on the theory and they say it must be right. And this is how it applies and it can't be criticized. And I, I think 
to, to that point and to the point that you just made then, uh, like one of the things that I loved about Professor Christensen's class is that it was always driven by not protecting theory or anything holier than thou. It was always the goal was to build a better understanding of how the world works and why, like building strong causal theory. And that meant that there were no holy cows. That that includes disruption. Like you learn the most when you go to the interesting cases where things can't be explained or where they don't work. You, you look for the threads that are sticking out and you pull on them like we have here. And this idea that disruption is, is something that can't be built upon or improved upon or we shouldn't look or we shouldn't criticize it. Like, like no, like I, I, you don't think that, I don't think that. And I, like, I hesitate to put words in anyone's mouth, but I came away from that course with such a, from Professor Christensen's course with such a strong belief. Like we, we've like, it's, it's like a responsibility to go and look for these interesting anomalies and see where they don't work. And, the way I think about the theory and the research is there's like this swamp of knowledge and we, the, the theory is like a pylon into the swamp that supports the weight all the way up until it doesn't. And we should be, we should look, like continue to build on, build on that and, and find instances where it doesn't work and continue to build new pylons out into the swamp. Yeah, well, the, the thing is, I think what what's so intriguing about the internet is it's almost like a completely new swamp, right. or, or like or like an ocean, right? And there's no pylons there, or whatever pylons are there are so far underwater as to be mostly unuseful for the vast majority vast majority of people. And no, and that's absolutely um, that's I mean, that's 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 what gets me excited about about theory and about writing about it and what I'm doing at Chatechery and yeah I know people get tired of me talking about like the aggregation theory that sort of stuff but that's exactly like I'm trying to build my little pylon over here and I think there's something I think there's something to it and um and it doesn't mean that other theories are bad or that like just things apply in different cases and and what I think is there's something that we've kind of tapped into just in this conversation, this idea of this sort of linkage, right? Like why do people so always tend to underestimate? You see these VC funding things come out. Be like, oh my God. Like well, I remember when Uber was, was valued at 18 billion and people lost their minds. Like, th- like this is like a year and a half ago. I think it was the first time I wrote about Uber. And I wrote the time, I'm like, I like we're dealing the transportation is a trillion dollar market. Like if there's even a remote chance that they're impactful here, eighteen billion dollars is a bargain. Mm. And but like people have a hard time, uh, I think, just seeing connecting from the narrow view of taxi to the broader view of transportation, for example, and also with the the whole part of investing in venture and that you're investing on a probability curve, not on a guarantee that it's going to happen. Mm. If, if it was a guarantee that Uber is going to disrupt transportation, it would not be, you would not be able to invest at $60 billion. You might be able to invest in $600 billion, right? But it's the uncertainty that is arguably giving you a 90% discount. Right. That's the dampener that remains. I, yeah, it's sixty-two billion. I mean, I, I it's it's like one of these things. It's like uh, it's like world records. Like you think it can't be broken, and then it just keeps tumbling down. Yeah, no, it it is interesting. Um, okay, no, what no, I, I I cut us off early, and then we we proceeded to go long. So, uh, thank you. Uh, I hope that this came across smoothly. Um, again, it was hard for us. Uh, um, but 
I hope it was good for you, the listener. And I hope it was good for uh, our sponsor, Wealthfront, uh, which is, again, sponsoring this episode. They're interesting because they automate habits and strategies that investors should be using on a regular basis, uh, but normally aren't. Great investing is a marathon, not a sprint. And the little things that you may not be familiar with, like automated tax loss harvesting, rebalancing, and smart dividend reinvesting can add up to a very large amounts of money over time. Wealthfront does all these things to your money automatically. As an exponent listener, you'll get $15,000 managed for free if you decide to open an account. But if you want, you can just start with seeing the portfolio they would suggest for you. Take two minutes, fill out their questionnaire at wealthfront.com slash exponent. Make sure it's a small E. I found out that matters. Um, it's free. And this is the best part. You don't even need to give them an email address. You can just go try it out. If you like it, want to give it a shot, you can get your first $15,000 managed for free. Wealthfront.com slash exponent. Sweet. All right. Well, James, thank you for uh, hustling home on a Friday night in Beijing to re-record uh, this, this this episode. My um, pleasure. I, I was I was pedaling through icy winds, but uh, at least uh, like today, I'm able to see everything. Uh, I, when I touched down here, the smog was it was amazing. Like I, I and I realize I'm risking getting us cut off from this call right now saying nasty <laughs> things but uh i have I, I, you know you land in the, the plane and it looked like it was just snowy and you know fog and whatever and then i got into the airport and i realized that you could actually see the smog inside the airport terminal and that is the first time i've ever experienced anything like that but i um, I, I i experienced it funnily enough the last time i was in beijing as well it was one of the worst days ever and what's funny is like 24 hours later it was totally clear yeah, right. And because that's like just, Beijing's like a bull, right? And so if the winds are blowing right, it, it's totally fine. Uh, but if they're not, <laughs> funnily enough, that's exactly what happened here. And I woke up the next morning, and it was a blue sky looking down at me, like what, what, what smog? I don't know was what you're talking dream? about. Right. All right. Well, um, uh, we should jump off quickly then before you get yourself in trouble. Um, but uh, thanks for jumping on again, and uh, thanks to our listeners for your patience, and thanks to Wealthfront for sponsoring. Cheers, mate. Great talking to you. All right, have a good night. See ya. Wealthfront is an SEC-registered investment advisor. Investing in securities involves risks, and there is a possibility of losing money. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Please visit Wealthfront.com to read their full disclosure.